is Thursday, November 8th, 2018. This is the Android Central Podcast. My name is Daniel Bader, and we're we're doing it uh, with four people today. We're, we're adding an extra person because we, we need an entire extra person to talk about a tiny phone, the Plam. We'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> but first, I'm going to introduce everybody on the pod. Jerry Hildenbrand, welcome back. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you, Dan? I'm good. I'm good. It's gray. It's cold. It's windy. It's Canada. It's Canada, yeah. <laughs> Andrew, Martinick, welcome back. How you doing? I think it's a, a, you're really burying the lead. It's a pretty massive get to have Steph Curry on the pod today. <laughs> yeah. Golden State's own. Welcome very much. Thank you for coming to the, this, this <laughs> tiny little podcast. Uh, but Steph also goes by Hayato Huseman sometimes. Hey, the, gold, hey. the Golden Corn State. The Golden uh, What? This, this is my this is my third episode in a row. I'm, I'm on a I'm on a hot streak here. You're on a well, no. I mean, it's 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 a streak. It may not be hot, but it's a streak of some well, sort. Wow. Last week we brought you on to talk about, or two weeks ago we brought you on to talk about the red hydrogen one, uh, which you just like decimated, but like kindly, um, and and then the reviews came out um, after we learned about what you had written. And others decimated it even more. So, yeah, I, I felt I felt bad with uh, how negative my takes were in the initial review, and then yeah, once once embargo lifted, I'm like, oh, this is actually like the most tepid review I've seen. Yeah, and I want I'll, I want to get to that um, in a little bit, but um, but I I also just wanted to kind of go over what we're going to be talking about today because we got a pretty packed show for you. Um, because there were a, there were a lot of interesting things that happened over, over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, new phones, the end of Techtober, Tech Apocalypse. Uh, so God. you know we have the OnePlus Six T. We have um, you know the the Hydrogen One. We have the the Palm phone. We also have a bunch of Apple products that that have just been announced, which I guess we could maybe talk about later on. But it's also a good opportunity to go back over the month or so and talk about products that are a little bit more mature, maybe have received a couple of software updates to fix some early bugs, and um, and just to get a sense of where we stand in the smartphone world of today. And then towards the end, we're going to talk about the future and what Samsung announced at the SDC yesterday um, with its foldable smartphone, its very ambitious display technology, and Jerry's going to help us understand everything technical that goes into it. So let's get started. And you know, I, I want to I want to start with you, Andrew, because we're talking or we've been talking Pixel Three for a while now. I mean, the phone was announced about a month ago. Uh, it yeah. was released a couple of weeks ago, and it just received its first software update with a bunch of fixes. But Google's promising even more fixes. And we still don't have that, I would say, phone-selling feature called Night Sight that was promised when the announcement happened. So as of today, where does the Pixel 3 sit? Is it, is it still the best phone you can buy? Has the, uh, have the updates improved um, things dramatically? And you know, given the, where we're standing with the 6T, can you still kind of recommend that product to everybody? 
Uh, I, I still think that the 3XL in particular is still a fantastic pickup. And I don't think that the lack of night sight at this point takes away from the camera experience. It's going to add a nice feature. I mean, we've seen people, uh, including yourself, Daniel, have gotten that, you know, the kind of sideload one where you can turn on an initial version of it. And it's cool. It's a neat feature. But that camera is just so amazing without the night sight stuff, even in low light, it's still really, really good. And using the six T's camera, you can see that there's still a massive gulf between the two. Uh, Google has a lot of special sauce in there and a lot of extra work that's gone in to elevate it above, you know, is it $300 better? I mean, that's up for debate obviously but anyway the camera is still amazing i think that the only thing that's really hurting the pixel right now is that it has this kind of drumbeat of oh my god it has all these problems and it's a it's a terrible phone and it's basically falling apart the second you take it out of the box kind of undercurrent that happens with every single google products uh, but the pixels get particularly uh hyper analyzed you might say <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's interesting. The only product that the company's released this year so far that hasn't received that much criticism is the Home Hub, uh, which is is really has been universally embraced, I guess, yeah. as, as just this amazing, really useful product. But uh, Hayato, uh, since we spoke last, you've added the Pixel 3 to your repertoire. Um, and I would love to know your impressions of the phone after a few days. Yeah, I mean, this is the first phone in quite a while that I've I've just bought with my own money, uh, and it was kind of your your second review that that sort of pushed me over the edge and made me buy it. I just you know seeing you say that it's basically your favorite phone uh, maybe ever made, and I'm I'm kind of coming to the same conclusion. Not necessarily because it's you know crazy powerful or has the best battery life, because it definitely does not have amazing battery compared to other phones I've messed with lately, but. Uh, you know, it it just it does what I need. The cameras are insanely good, and uh, I just really love having a small phone again. It's it's so nice not being on a phablet if we're still using that word. We're not. No, are we? No, no. I, I try not, not to. We're not allowed to. There's <laughs> there's this law. Oh, okay, yeah, it was it was passed along with it, it within the omnibus bill earlier in the year. <laughs> can't can't say the word phablet anymore. Sorry. Yeah, I got thrown um, out with uh, along with Huawei's Groofy term. <laughs> God. And then there was what two Toofy as well. Toofy is that? Yeah, is that? Oh yeah. no, Bothy, Bothy. That's the Nokia term. I think. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, so, Jerry, I you know Joe wrote this piece uh, earlier in the week about how the Pixel Three, especially the XL, um, missed an opportunity to push face unlock as part of the the android ecosystem right we know that um the there are various phones like the lg g7 and and v40 and the oneplus 16 and a bunch of others that use you know an rgb camera based face unlock which is inherently um insecure and then there are other companies like uh, oppo and and huawei that are pushing a more face id like um a more secure unlock method. But given the fact that Google has to be that first, um, you know, I, I would say it, it really has to represent the future of biometrics in Android itself. And 
when they introduced the biometrics API earlier with Marshmallow, that's exactly what happened. A lot of the companies um, eventually ended up just abandoning their proprietary methods and adopting Google's because it was compatible with all these apps. Um, do you think that Google missed an opportunity with the Pixel 3 and 3XL to bring a Face ID-like system into Android? Not really. Uh, and and I don't know why it doesn't work as well as expected. Uh, I, I actually have a lot of experience with the way it's done, you know, by, by Apple, by the originator, with using an infrared dot matrix. It should work nearly perfectly, but it doesn't. Uh, maybe they're trying to get it to work perfectly before they put it into Android. As many complaints as I hear about Face ID on the iPhone that doesn't have another way to unlock, uh, no, that's not a mandatory on any phone yet. Yeah, there there are two problems there. It's the the actual scanning technological problem and all of the added cost in the hardware and the development cost of getting all of these different phones to have all these different sensors in there. But there's also just the software baseline Android side of it's not like the iPhone where you can, you know, do a face unlock and then also have face unlock work for everything that a fingerprint sensor used to work right. for. Uh, all of these face unlock systems, even the more advanced one that we see on the Mate 20 Pro, it's for unlocking the phone. You can't authenticate purchases with it. You can't open your your password manager app with it. It's not a core level biometric unlock. It's only effectively for unlocking the phone screen. And so right now, there's it. That's kind of a chicken and the egg there. Like Samsung is not going to go through all the trouble of having you know something even more advanced and even faster than than the iris scanning if it's just not going to work on anything but its own proprietary well, apps samsung was going to be my example if there was a way to make it work more reliably than than it does now samsung would be doing it uh they're not afraid right. to spend money and do it themselves knowing in two years, they're going to have to change everything to make it work with Google's method. Yeah, look, and they even did that Samsung with the fingerprint sensor. Yeah. So I don't think it's time yet. I think it's time that companies like Google and Samsung and, of course, Apple and Huawei are working on this to perfect this technology. And this time, Pixel owners aren't the guinea pig. So, so um Back in May, when Google announced changes to its biometrics API, what it said was if an OEM wants to use a face unlock method to stand in for a fingerprint sensor, it can do that. So there was no, there was nothing stopping Huawei, for instance, from allowing its face ID like technology to unlock, uh, to, to not just unlock your phone and use their own first party apps, but actually, you know, get, you know, activate right. Google pay or uh, get uh, into one password. Other than spending all the R and D money and hardware support to do that securely for something like, you know, your password manager or your bank. That's, that's nothing to scoff at. There's a lot of money involved there. So then the other question is this, uh, in-display fingerprint sensor. Uh, we've seen it now 
in a bunch of devices from Vivo and Oppo. Uh, now with the OnePlus 6T, it's in North America. And then the Mate 20 Pro is probably going to be the, the device that sells in the highest volume with an in-display fingerprint sensor. If that isn't the future, because it's a little finicky and it's not necessarily better than a capacitive fingerprint sensor, and Face ID-like technology isn't ready for Android, um, what's the future of biometrics on Android then, Jerry? Is it just continuing, the, you know, keeping the status quo, or will we eventually see one adopted um, to replace capacitive fingerprint sensors? I think we'll probably eventually see both, but for now, you, you the, this is critical stuff. Uh, you know, they 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 spend the money and they they have actual hardware inside your phone that helps keep all this secure. Because you know, I'll, I'll use I, I bank with Chase. Chase is not going to want to s- approve something that's not secure to be used with their app. They're just not. They're they're gonna they're gonna go off if OnePlus wants to use an in display fingerprint scanner and it can't be as secure as a capacitive one. I'm not saying that it's not, you know, don't 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 write me angry emails. But you have to you can't abandon what is inherently secure. And we know the way fingerprint scanning works on Android, it's not the most secure, but it is secure enough. You can't abandon that until something else is secure enough and works, you know, 80, 90% of the time or more. So when you say um, it's not like completely secure, but it's secure enough, are you talking about the way that the uh, biometric data is stored on the phone. No, or- no, the way the the way it it's possible to fake any fingerprint sensor. It's fo- it's possible to fake any iris scanner. Not easy, not easy at all. It's impossible to fake entering a six digit pin. You either enter the right pin or you don't. That right. that's what I mean there. Got it. Okay, so we're we're always like we're back to talking about that you know, eternal compromise between biometric convenience and, right. and security. Um, so, you know, an, another thing too is that face unlock, uh, when it works really well, it, it just feels like magic. I mean, we've talked about this yep. Hayato, um, with the OnePlus 6 and how it was just so fast. And the same thing with the 6T, it's just so fast that you're almost like, I'm okay with it not being as secure because I'm just using it to log in to my phone, but everything that really requires um, a, a harder or thicker wall, like getting into your Chase app or paying for on Google Pay or something, that still requires another type of um, authentication, another layer. And you know, is that enough? Is that is that a good experience for you when you're using it? You know, I, I'm I'm kind of a. I'm kind of a diehard fingerprint sensor guy, and uh, I, I think I think facial recognition is really nice when my phone's on a wireless charger because you know, like especially with the, with the fingerprint sensor being on the back, I can't I, I, I can't get into my phone without uh, you know without picking it up and taking it off the charger. So I really like facial recognition for that purpose. 
Um, but you know, as, as, as far as convenience goes, cause that's, I'm, I'm not maybe, maybe not as concerned about security as I should be. I'm, I'm more concerned with the convenience of it and having a little bit of, of security. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I still prefer fingerprint sensors, but I'm, I'm okay with like one super quick camera facial recognition. I, I know there's some engineers at some companies that I don't know if I can name or not that facial recognition is going to replace your username and not your password. Oh, really? Which I like a whole lot better. Uh, put my phone up to my face and it knows who I am. Uh, then require me to provide some sort of authentication method afterwards as my password, quote unquote. Uh, mm-hmm. Which is a, a lot of security professionals like that idea a lot better than using something like your fingerprint or your face as your authentication method because you can never change that. Yeah, I mean, the I feel like every year we get closer to talking about this this idea of ambient authentication of being able to constantly authenticate yourself um, both as you know, using a password as well as using an object as a method of two-factor authentication. Mm-hmm. Uh, this past month, I think two weeks ago, a company named Motive, which creates a ring called the Motive Ring, uh, which has until now been used mainly as like a fitness tracker. It has a an accelerometer and a um, a heart rate sensor on, on, on uh, underneath it, and you wear it like any other ring. Uh, the company updated its app and its firmware to support um, token biometric or token authentication, which means that on a PC or Mac and a compatible browser like Chrome, you can actually log into your Google account, your Facebook account, anything that supports token keys like the Titan key that you have talked about by just um, using a gesture. So you, you move your hand in a certain way and that acts as a token. Um, that's really interesting. Yep. But yep. is it, is it a better experience? Um, you know, once you, once you wear the ring, that's basically authenticating you on an ongoing basis. For some people, yeah, it's going to be a better experience. We're, we're all a little different. The, there are so many different ways to both authenticate who you are and provide a, a token to grant you access uh, other companies are working with sound. Believe it or not, your voice is almost as distinct as your fingerprint. And there there are lots of different ways. And I think if we look far forward, 10 years from now, uh, passwords, usernames are going to be just an antiquity because with all the microphones and cameras and sensors and everything else a phone has, and all the other things that are around us, my phone can know if I have it in my hand or if I don't. That's the that future bring, we're striving for. That brings up a, a, a kind of a point that could introduce a huge rabbit hole that may require an entirely new episode. Um, but that brings up the, this idea of deep fakes, right? Yeah. And how easily it's been over the last year or so to imitate somebody's face and somebody's voice on right. video and especially voice to me that 
you know, Google's introduced as well. I think Amazon has multi-user support on the Google Home and it will easily be able to tell the difference between you and, and your family members. But, you know, a lot of people when I was growing up mistook me for my brother when we answered the phone at home. We still sound very similar. We have the same intonations. Um, you know, I wonder, is that really as secure or is it is it one of those things that will just take a lot more engineering to get right uh, when we're trying to differentiate voice? Well, the question but for all of those security, the all of those security levels, whether you're talking about something as simple as camera-based face recognition all the way up to multi-factor authentication with a fingerprint and a token, you know, and a time-based code or something like that is how how likely are you to be targeted for one of those specific types of attacks? Yes, we know that it's possible to bypass the fingerprint, it's possible to bypass the facial recognition. But who are you to be someone who is going to be targeted enough for somebody to go through the hassle of doing that? And that's kind of why we talk about, oh, well, the OnePlus facial facial recognition is really good because it just it keeps like random person from opening the phone. But it's easily bypassable if somebody really cares. Right. Hayato said he, he likes it. He thinks it's convenient. And that's great. That, to me, means it's secure because, now granted, one of us may play a practical joke and have a high-resolution picture of Hayato to get into his phone, but some random guy who finds his phone on the bus is not going to have that. Right, yeah. and that's, that's, that's good enough for me. Yeah, and that's good enough for almost everybody, and that makes it a, you know, a, a win-win because that means more people are going to keep their phone at least mostly secure. I um I ran into this issue in a very practical way when I was reviewing the um, Nest Yale lock, uh, this collaboration between the 200-year-old lock company, uh, Yale, and Nest, the smart home company. Uh, it was announced last year, released uh, earlier this year, and I installed it. And one of the things that you can do is you can say, you know, okay, G, uh, lock the door. And it will lock the door from anywhere in the world. Literally, if you, you know, if the if the door lock is connected to the internet, it will it will lock it. But there is no way to unlock the door using your voice. Uh, and Google says that's because it doesn't want to introduce any liability there. Like, yeah. it doesn't want to. It, 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 it's possible to make it pretty likely that it can tell the difference between your voice and somebody else's, but it right. does not want to take the chance there of somebody accidentally walking up to your door going, okay, gee, unlock the door and walking in. It's Are just, you, yeah. Yelling in your window to your Google <laughs> home on that on yeah, the shelf to, to get voice prints. And that's what they're called to get voice prints. Enough to be used as authentication is way too slow right now. It, you know, it takes, we're talking, in the tens of seconds. And could you imagine if you had to wait 10 seconds plus every time you wanted to unlock your phone? And we're at, when we're at the point right now where we're trying to get down to the level where these things actually recognize our voice just at all. Right. And so like, we're already accepting a certain level of error, uh, error rate just to get it down to the point where my Google home actually hears me say the trigger phrase every single time because it, it still doesn't. Well, have you guys seen that software where you, 
you, you can train it to basically create um, your voice robotically. It, it, it like it gives you different prompts of random yeah. words to say that capture all the different, uh, you know, just all the different nuances of your voice. And it kind of uh, compiles all of that into like you can just type in whatever and it, it'll dictate with your voice. And it sounds kind of natural, like kind of real. Sounds good enough to fool somebody over the phone, which makes it a little worrisome. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, look at Google Duplex. It's not it's not hiding the fact that it's a robot, but it's also, you know, it was criticized when it was announced in May for trying to imitate the idiosyncrasies of of human speech and this idea of adding ums and hums and things like that. Why would that be necessary unless you are trying to fool or at least trying to fit in with this larger notion of a human calling another human. You know, I, I, I like that Google is doing that because a lot of people, when they interact with a voice-controlled object that talks back to them, are going to feel more at ease with those little, mm, yeah, that we don't notice, but we would notice if they're missing. That, that, that's kind of cool to make it feel like you can connect with, you know, your smart assistant. But I was on board with that, you know, if it's a robot calling, why try to make it fool people into thinking that it's a real person? That was a little unnecessary. I mean, we also talk about this uncanny valley, right? And, you know, I, I want to use this to transition in, into this discussion on on, on, on the iPad for, for a minute or two, because, you know, the uncanny valley is this way of, um, not really being sure if it's if it's real or fake. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, there was that CGI movie from I think fifteen twenty years ago. Um, uh, it was like a Christmas movie. It's on the top of my head. But DreamWorks was criticized of Polar for, Express. Thank you. Yeah, uh, Polar Express, and th- they were criticized for not focusing enough on the eyes, and the eyes were this super creepy thing that you know the characters were sort of real and sort of not and in the last couple of years we've seen the rise of the emoji the 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 real emoji whatever you call it um apple calls it the um what is it called the memoji memoji yeah and none of those are trying to convey any sort of realism at all except for the fact that it uses your face's movement to recreate the the, the movement itself but they're not trying to recreate you in any hyper photorealistic way. It's 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 all cartoon, and and I think that is acknowledging that people don't really want CGI recreations of themselves in any way on the internet unless you've explicitly allowed it to happen. Um, the Sony, for instance, launched its that three D creator thing where you scan somebody's yeah. head to yeah. create a hyper realistic. 3D version of themselves, that is probably the creepiest, even though it's not perfect yet, if you do it well enough, it is incredibly creepy. Um, and I don't want that anywhere near me. I'm too late. I've already got that 3D Daniel Bader <laughs> that you showed us when you were demoing it. And yeah, it's, oh, that, that's right. it's scary. I, 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 it's, it's not fun at all. Uh, being a ghost or a fox or a pig that mimics my facial movements and and talking or some weird hippie-looking cartoon guy that's named Jerry that's talking and running his mouth, that's fun. There's no fun in a weird 
look like you know pod person zombie recreation of yourself that's not fun speak for yourself oh, man Z- zombie zombie recreations of people uh in ar i think will probably be one of the more popular ver- uh, recreations just you know for halloween um but i i want to move on to to talk a little bit about this essay that jerry wrote last week about uh usb-c and the new ipad pro because it's a very interesting take and not one that I'd really thought about before I read his his piece. And it's all about how with the iPad Pro moving to USB-C over Lightning uh, and Apple really positioning the iPad Pro as a laptop replacement, and, and we don't have to get into whether it is or not, because again, that's another show. But a lot of peripherals work with the iPad Pro now. You can plug in a printer, you can pr- plug in a camera something uh, you can plug in a monitor and it'll just work. You can't plug in a hard drive unless the app itself supports uh, accessing a file system. But Jerry, you think that this is actually going to make the entire mobile industry better and more USB-C compliant. Um, why, why do you think that? Well, number one, because, and, and like I said, we, like you said, we won't get into it. The iPad Pro may be a, a PC replacement, but it's still a mobile operating system. It's iOS. It's not macOS. Uh, that tells me that in the near future, within five years, your iPhone will have a USB-C port. If I can figure that out, so can every Chinese company that makes USB headsets. That right now, you it's, it's a crapshoot whether it's going to work or not. You can spend a lot of money and buy name brand products and know that they will work. But there are so many USB-C things you can find on Amazon and probably 50% plus of them don't work like you think they will or don't work as intended. This is going to fix all that because everybody will want their thing to work with iOS. Uh, And everybody includes Huawei and Samsung and Sony and even Google if the standard needs to shift a little bit to match what Apple was doing, that's what manufacturers will do, whether or not the actual standard itself moves. And are we at a point now where USB-C is safe enough and reliable enough that you could probably go to Amazon, just search something like X USB-C and buy the most popular thing and it'll just work? Not yet. It, it, it'll it probably just work on your laptop with a USB-C port. But for your Android phone, no, we're not there yet. And that's a problem. And I think the the bigger issue, like with Amazon, you have all of these different options and it's it's easy to do a little bit of research. I think the bigger issue is for people that aren't doing that research. And, and I mean, I think if you go to Amazon, you can look through the top you know, six, seven results or something, you'll probably find something that is, you know, kind of shown to work for what you want it to do. The problem is if you walk into Best Buy or Target or Walmart or whatever, or you just need a charger for your phone, you go to the the nearest convenience store, uh, they're not going to have USB-C chargers. (laughs) And if they do, uh, it might be a little sketchy. Right. I mean, what's interesting... Uh, sorry to interrupt. I was just looking on Amazon right now and Amazon basics, which is the Kirkland of Amazon, right? It's the generic mm-hmm. brand that is just supposed to work and be cheap and good. 
Amazon now sells a USB-C to USB-C cable as well as a whole yeah. bunch of USB-C to A cables and adapters and things like that. I mean, if Amazon is just white labeling a whole bunch of USB-C products, we should be pretty confident that they're going to work with the vast majority of devices, right? Yeah. Uh, Amazon Basics is, that's one thing that I tell people, they ask me, which cable to buy? Buy the one that says Amazon Basics or you know, has that little black badge that Amazon endorses it because it's going to be fine. But there are 10 million other products listed down 11 pages deep, and you have no idea if those are going to work. And the thing is, the stakes are just quite a bit higher now. That's the that's the thing. If you go to, in my example, the, the corner store or whatever, your cable broke, you're leaving on a trip and you need to get a cable – you could have gone and spent $2 on a micro USB cable and it's probably not the best, but you're, you were only going to run five volt, one amp through that thing because it's a, it's a little wall charger. Now you're, you're looking at running 20 Watts through a USB C cable. But I I think where we are now, cables are okay. I I think all the companies that made, you know, it, (laughs) When when Dieter's laptop blew up, that kind of changed everything because <laughs> it, it, that that opened a lot of people's eyes to hey, these cables really can mess up your stuff. So I, I think we've weeded out all the bad cables. But now, then you've got headphones: are they active or are they passive? And you've got you know dumb stuff like USB C powered fans. I've got a little fan that you can plug into your laptop. Uh, it doesn't work with Android. It should. It just needs voltage, but it doesn't work. Or adapters, USB micro to USB-C or, you know, on-the-go cables, that kind of stuff. Yet it, it is a giant crapshoot whether it's going to work or not. Apple can change that. Did you see Neli plugging in like a like a Spencer's party light into his iPad Pro? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I just want to, you know, also bring up something, uh, and, and this is kind of cool. So last uh, two weeks ago, Anchor or Anchor um, had a, an event in New York City where, among other things, it announced a 45 watt USB C adapter that is the size of like a five watt charger um, that you would find from other companies, and it's using this new silicon replacement called gallium nitride and gallium nitride is an old it's an old material it's not something that has it's been around for a while but it's it hasn't been it hasn't replaced silicon as a way to build um uh you know circuit boards and whatnot because there's just no scale there it's more expensive to manufacture but it runs cooler it actually allows for higher frequencies so it can uh, be smaller inside the same. Uh, it can power the same or more wattage with with a smaller motherboard. Um, and Jerry, you've looked into this a little bit. Yeah, um, is this the future of charging, yes. or is it kind of just a gimmick? It better be the future of charging because yeah, when you showed me that, it's you know I've heard of this before, but but I'm not really sure why I've heard of it. And when you sent me that link and said, you know, is this something you think is kind of cool? And I started looking. It's yes, this is this should be the future of charging because it it uh, 
not only do we like things that are smaller, we like things that don't get really hot. So if this podcast posts after Saturday, you're going to see what I've written about it because I have this thing because I, I really fell into that rabbit hole deep. I think it's one of the coolest things I've read about in the last year. Yeah. And so just to be, um, you know, just to give a b- bit more information on this. So it's called the Anchor PowerPort Atom. It's basically slightly bigger than I would say like a 10 or 15 watt charger that you would get in the box for us, you know, a, a new smartphone. Um, but it offers 27 watt charging via USB-C. Um, it's very, very portable. Uh, it doesn't run hot at all. And it may not be a big deal, but it's also a pretty big leap forward in terms of how much power can go through a, a, a an AC adapter. Um, and when you think about the fact that right now, if you go on to Amazon and you want to buy a five or six port charger to charge all of your things at once, you'll only find one USB-C port and then five USB-A ports or something like that. Why is that? Well, because the power brick, the the amount of wattage that's going through the power brick is just too much. It it'll, it would be this massive Xbox One size power brick uh that would be needed to charge, you know, the the USB-C standard is what 100 watts, Jerry. So, if you wanted to power say, th- you know, 5 30 watt um devices and get maximum speed, the power brick you'd need for that would just be enormous. And probably I'm going to go on record and say dangerous. Right. Unless Some, it, it's going to turn the wall plate on your plug brown. It's going to be so hot. <laughs> so, and yeah. this alleviates that. And that's cool. All right. Um, okay. So let's, let's move on. Um, Hayato, I, I know you've been waiting with bated breath to talk about this. Um, but you reviewed this new Palm phone. It's a Verizon exclusive. It's the, I was going to say stupidest, but it's not the stupidest. It's one of the stupidest ideas that I've heard in a while. We've seen some dumb ideas. We've definitely seen some dumb ideas, but I'm curious about, I'm curious about why Palm or the makers of Palm or the make the owners of the Palm brand TCL have decided to partner with Verizon on this. So tell us a little bit about what it is for people who don't know and uh, what it can do. So the Palm phone is, or Palm Palm or Palm device, whatever you want to call it, there's like no official name for it that, that I can find, but mm. it's a, it's a really fun little device because it's, it's genuinely the smallest phone that I've ever seen um, since the, the HP Veer uh, from, I don't know, 2011 which I just pulled that out of my car last night and they're, they're almost the same size. It's hilarious. Um, but it, it's basically this little companion device. It's not a standalone phone. You can't, you can't buy it. Uh, if like without another phone on your account, it can't just be your, your only device. It's, it's sort of like a smartwatch that doesn't strap to your wrist where it's attached to the same phone number as your primary device and uh, you can you can send and receive calls and texts from either phone, and they'll they'll all show up on both. Um, so it it's sort of intentionally super small and sort of inconvenient on purpose 
with the idea that, you know, it, it's sort of there to make you use your phone less. It's, it's for people that really just don't have self-control to put their phones down. And it, it's sort of, you know, like, we're going to make this harder so that you don't want to use your phone as often. Uh, okay. So <laughs> why? <laughs> yeah. Why? <laughs> I've, I've been I trying mean, to, I like, mean, oh, that's ahead, a big, like, I also got the last part of it right there. <laughs> I, he said, it's for the people that have no self-control. Uh, the, the thing is, this is an expensive, exclusive way to handle that. So it's only for Verizon customers and it requires that you buy this phone and that it's attached to an account where you already have another phone. I mean, you could just, it, this just isn't, this just isn't a, a very practical way for people to handle that problem. Well, and, and to add on top of that, you know, the phone itself will cost you 350 bucks and it adds That's another, insane. and it adds another 10 bucks to your monthly bill for having a secondary uh, device, just like a smartwatch would. All so right, you're, so you're just you're paying out the ass for this phone for just no reason, really. And but I'm I'm somebody who acknowledges that smartphone addiction is a thing. I use my phone too much, and I can probably guess most people on this call or listening to this podcast use their phone too much as well. We're just in a culture that does not, for some reason, look down on smartphone addiction the way that it does other addictions, and. It's in, it's actually tacitly encouraged because it's a way for us to stay in touch, right? We say that our smartphone is our main computer, but it's also our main communication device, and you're always available. So this idea of a small communicator that doesn't do much else, right? You're not going to watch hours of YouTube on here, but it does oh, have. You can, but you you can, but you probably won't, right? Let's make the assumption. Let, let's. Roll with the assumption that you'll use the phone for what Palm thinks you're going to use it for. Otherwise, why would you buy it in the first place? Um, so you're you're using it as a secondary device just to keep in touch with people, make calls, send messages, whatever, post to Instagram occasionally. Um, does it work? Is it something that does make you? Does it does it scratch the itch uh, without necessarily? Um, digging you a deeper hole? Yes and no. Um, you know, it, it it is still running a full version of Android 8.1. So you can still have all the functionality of, uh, of you know, say your primary phone. You're, you know, if you need to call a Lyft or if you're, you're you know, just trying to keep up with your friends on something that's not texting, like Hangouts or, or WhatsApp or Slack or whatever, it'll still do all of that. Um, the the biggest problem I ran to uh, with it is that it's both severely underpowered and the battery life is uh, <laughs> let's let's just say it's good that you're not supposed to use it often because you really can't. <laughs> so it's just like a Palm Pre, in other yeah. words. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, I mean, that's it's, a, it's that's an the funniest thing about this. It's an 800 million like, hour battery. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, because the thing is tiny. It's like the size. I, I don't, well, it's the size of an HP Veer, but nobody knows what that is. So it, it's you're also, really tiny. You're also evaluating it based on a, a, a sort of use case that technically shouldn't apply to a device like this. That's that's the funniest thing about it is they didn't actually do the thing that it 
purports to help you do. Like it's still a full featured phone. It, this isn't like the um, like the light phone or whatever those are that are like really simple phones or like the uh, Nokia, the new 3310 or anything like that. One of these phones with a very basic operating system that literally does not let you do the things that you want because it can't. And this is like, it just makes it so slow and painful that you won't do the things. But really, it's like you're you're paying to not have like not have the ability to do those things, but you still kind of get them, and so you don't really get the simplicity that you're paying for anyway. Right. That's why it seems so odd. And I mean, you know, like let let's say I'm just going to the gym and I, I want to leave my expensive phone behind so I don't you know it doesn't fall out of my pocket and break and whatever, but. You know, that, that that's sort of what I imagine the, the main use case of this being is leaving your main phone behind, taking this on, on, you know, small trips. But even for that use case where you're not really using the phone that often, it's going to it's going to die pretty quickly in your pocket. I mean, I, I haven't made it through even even to, you know, three or four p.m. with the phone. Um, yeah, I mean, a full a full fledged Android operating system is just in a in a color screen is just going to destroy 800 milliamp hours in no time yeah they they do kind of combat that a little bit with this life mode that it switches to where basically it, it turns off all the cellular comms and uh it leaves bluetooth on for like music streaming but in pretty much every other way it's just airplane mode and that'll that'll automatically turn on when you turn the screen off and then it you know all, all of your wi-fi and and data and everything comes back on when the screen comes back on and in theory, that's a nice way to save battery when you're not using the phone. But then it sort of does more harm than good because when you turn the screen back on, uh, you know, your battery has to then suffer from reconnecting to all of those networks. And then, you know, you get that barrage of notifications and that's going to take your battery down even more. I mean, I've, I've watched the battery literally trickle down by, you know, one, two percent a minute as I'm just scrolling through Twitter or something, which you're not supposed to do anyway. But, you know, running running an app update will will tank the battery by a few percentage points like it's 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 so quick to die out no matter what you do so uh the original take that i had on this was why like other than the fact that it still receives calls on your verizon number which is a thing uh but it's less of a thing for a larger number of people every single day who just don't really make phone calls and especially when you're on a situation of you want to take this on a camping trip or whatever, and you're not going to make phone calls anyway, but wouldn't you just be better off buying like a last generation Moto E4? Yeah. I mean that or, or a smartwatch or, or something, you know I mean? It, it doesn't really, I, I think a smartwatch is probably the, the best comparison because that's sort of all that a smartwatch kind of, you know, kind of strives to do anyway is all the same all the same things it does basic smartphone features but it limits you away from doing you know things like scrolling through twitter for an hour and a half um although i i do want to i do want to say that i i appreciate that the palm phone does bring this sort of number cloning over to verizon um i i just you know even if people don't make a whole lot of phone calls these days i think it's nice to sort of break away from that really sort of archaic idea in my opinion that that a phone number needs to be just attached to one one device because you know like what what other 
what other digital association with your identity is only attached to one device at a time, you know, like sure. Im- imagine just having Gmail on your laptop and you can't have it on your phone or, or whatever. So I, I like that. I like that number cloning is a thing on Verizon now, sort of like how T-Mobile has its digits program. And I think AT&T has a similar thing too. Yeah, they do. I, I just think it's great that you had to dig that deep to find something nice to say. <laughs> Look, okay. The other thing I like about it, it's really fun to pull out and show people because you will never get anything but an excited and, and just happy response when they pick up this tiny, tiny little phone. And it's just always hilarious to everybody you show it to. Well, they're happy yeah. when they give it back to you is what you mean, right? Yeah. yeah that reminds that me too. of that, that little, uh, what's the, the jelly phone, the Unihertz jelly. Yeah. Is that what it is? Yeah. yeah. That's what that reminds me of. I ruined it. <laughs> All I'm yeah, saying I is, see if that. You, it's kind of neat. If, if you get a hold of one of these phones for like, you know, get get one that like doesn't turn on for 50 bucks in a couple of months on eBay or something like that. Just get it for the novelty and then, uh, you know, just go back to using a real phone when you're done. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm glad that you are the one that reviewed it. Let, let me say that right up front. Uh, but I, I'm not. TCL, we know what the code name for this device was, and everybody that I know from South Florida is is laughing if they know what it is. Why'd you ditch that name? <laughs> you know, I hope somebody from TCL is listening because I don't even want to say it. To, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. But uh, where, who, what, what, what were you thinking? Stop! Just stop! Don't do that ever again. Uh, I mean, there's a there's an argument here that, um, you know, 2018, among other things, will be remembered for the the year or as the year of, of digital well being, um, or at least that the companies that control our lives, from Google to Apple to Amazon, they introduced features that allow us to disconnect more easily, or at least hold ourselves more accountable. And the Palm phone is a physical manifestation of digital well-being, but it's also a physical manifestation of privilege and of the fact that you have to have an existing phone with an existing plan to buy one. And I, I do find that really, that, that message, I think, competes with, with itself, and it's a little bit counterintuitive. Um, you know, it's not a cheap product. And I wonder if this is aiming more for CEOs than for the regular person who is as addicted to his or her phone as anybody else in the world. Um, I, I think that the average person is way better off getting really strict with their controls in digital well-being or on their iPhone or whatever than trying to add additional complication even if they could afford it with one of, you know, the, the Palm phone. I, I, I see your point there, Daniel, but, but I think if that's what they were trying to do, they absolutely failed because I see this as a digital enabler because, yo, yeah, I'm not using my phone, but here I am watching YouTube and playing on Twitter and texting and everything else, but this isn't really my phone. Oh, this, this is the, the vape of phones. <laughs> Gee, that's perfect. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but I'll take it. Um, 
the 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 phone your your google pixel 3xl or your galaxy note 9 is the uh pack a day of cigarettes oh god and you're like oh i'm i'm it's okay i'm not using that phone and then you're you're power scrolling twitter on your palm phone which is like getting all up in your vape right the dual phone the, yeah, yeah the, exactly. Any any FDA warnings or anything like that will have been suppressed by lobby groups and yeah, made and not because <laughs> it's a smaller it's a smaller phone. It fits in the same pocket as your vape. God. Getting getting back to that uh, digital well being thing for a sec. <laughs> um, if I'm remembering right, I think the Verge's initial hands on with the phone they they spoke with somebody at Palm uh, about the fact that the phone doesn't have Android nine Pie, which has all the well being features and. Uh, their response was sort of they didn't want the phones um, they, they didn't want the features of the Palm phone to overlap with the features of digital well-being. And that's just a really confusing message to me when that's that's they're sort of, you know, reaching for the same thing. So why not just embrace digital well-being I- entirely with the phone? You know, I mean, I, I don't I don't know why this needed to be its own different uh, feature set on the phone. Right. In other words, the that software feature that Google gives away for free, we don't want it to overshadow our, you know, the only uh, real reason to spend three hundred and fifty dollars on this gadget. <laughs> so, well, I, I would argue there is no reason to spend three hundred fifty dollars on this gadget. I, I would say this is the one time the LG Watch Sport would be a better choice than any <laughs> other thing in the world. The LTE, I think the LTE connected version of that was more expensive than this when it first came out yeah. too. So I think it was like four or something. Wow. All right, let's move on. Uh let's thank our sponsor for the for this week. And um we are I'm I'm really excited about this one. Casper is a brand I think everybody listening to this knows. You've heard it on other podcasts before. You've heard it on this podcast and there's a reason that it is just known within popular culture. It's the bed that expands on its own when you take it out of the box. And it gives you lots of comfortable nights of sleep. Uh, it has over 20,000 reviews on Amazon and Google with an average of 4.8 stars. Uh, it is incredibly comfortable to sleep on. It comes with a 100-night guarantee. So if you're not happy with it, you can return it. And there's free shipping and returns in the U.S. or Canada. How does Casper stay as cheap as it is? Well, it's designed and assembled in the US and there are no middlemen. There's nobody to get in the middle of you and your new mattress. Um, It's really well designed. It mimics human curves, supporting all different kinds of bodies. And because you spend a third of your life sleeping, you deserve to be comfortable. So you can purchase Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial by going to casper.com slash AC. I love this, I love this uh, address, by the way, because normally our addresses are, you know, whatever.com slash ACP. This is the shortest one we've ever had. This is just casper.com slash AC. That's prime URL real estate. Right I feel very lucky, actually, that we're the first AC uh, that Casper <laughs> has given get the- out. The see the next advertiser that gives us slash a <laughs> slash a Casper, come on, you, you missed an opportunity <laughs> there. Just give us slash a or no, just give us casper.com. 
Um, so if you go to <laughs> casper.com slash AC, you use the promo code AC at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. You get that 100-night risk-free sleep on a trial. Um, you, you know, I know so many people who have had great experiences with their with their Casper mattress from the moment they get it delivered. They post these, you know, euphoric videos on Instagram, unwrapping it, opening the box, seeing it expand like I don't know one of those like chia pets or whatever you call it. <laughs> it just it just like jumps into in, into action, and then you sleep on it and you love it. So if you're interested, you get fifty dollars towards select mattresses by going to casper.com slash AC and using AC at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. That's casper.com slash AC with the code AC at checkout. Thank you so much to Casper for sponsoring the show. Okay, um, our last segment is going to focus on Samsung. Now, Samsung went a little crazy this week at its uh, developer conference, and I would argue that it was all good, actually. It it didn't have there were there were no bombs. Uh, we can talk a little bit about Bixby because the company promised the world, and as we've known, has not delivered the world with Bixby. But apparently, Bixby is getting a lot better. Andrew, there's a new uh, bunch of new developer tools. There's a uh, desktop based um, development kit that allows people to build applications directly with Bixby support. Bixby is coming to every single AI you know, internet connected product that Samsung is creating from stoves to fridges to microwaves to everything in between. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's going to be there whether you like it or not. Is, is this, are we getting to the point where we just cannot avoid Bixby and we just have to accept it for what it is? No. Yeah. You're, you're not going <laughs> to get away. No, you're not going to get away from it. I think that the, the problem right now is that everybody in the Android world in particular is, they think of Bixby as this really bad audio based, you know, conversational virtual assistant and Samsung is not using it that way. Uh, Samsung uses the word Bixby to mean anything that is uh, artificial intelligence is, is so such a lame phrase. That's the problem, but they're using it to describe anything that's connected and smart for lack of better terms, those are kind of the normal things. So it's not just the, uh, the voice in your phone that talks to you and you talk to, no, it's the voice in your head. (laughs) It's the, it's the smarts that connects is, uh, like you said, connects everything that Samsung does. And they said that by 2020, they are not going to sell a product that does not have some sort of Bixby intelligence built into it. And they're also making Bixby this, um, artificial intelligence engine that anyone can plug into and they're going to, you know, they have developer tools and an SDK now that you can create anything that you want using that intelligence engine. Uh, not unlike what, uh, Amazon and Google offers, uh, to be able to use Alexa and Google assistant in whatever way you want to use it. Uh, are they a little late to the game? Yeah. Uh, will anybody really choose to do that when it's so kind of inextricably linked to hardware, Samsung hardware, Eh, who knows, (laughs) but they're definitely giving it a shot. They're, they're not just keeping this as a 
it's not just a corollary for a Google Assistant and Alexa and a speaker. It's much wider ranging than that. Uh, Jerry, what I find really interesting is as long as Samsung puts Android on phones, it will have to include Google Assistant in some form. Right. Uh, it can include a Bixby button to make it easy to activate its own AI assistant. But ultimately, um, if Samsung wants to play ball with with Android and Google, which, as we'll talk about in a minute, it definitely does, uh, Google Assistant is always going to overshadow Bixby. Um, but as Andrew pointed out, this is not just a smartphone play. This is a, this is an ecosystem play. And Samsung does not make most of its money from its phones. Right. I, I've said something about that on a, a few podcasts back uh, before this happened is that between refrig- smart refrigerators and washer and dryers and televisions and stereo equipment and everything else Samsung makes, I couldn't understand why Bixby didn't become more of a thing. Now I understood they were just holding back the announcement. This is huge for Samsung. Uh, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably use Google Assistant and you probably hate Bixby and you've probably been online and said those words or something to that effect. Uh, Samsung is not that concerned that you feel that way right now. Uh, Bixby can do a lot more than the thing you're complaining that it doesn't do well. And eventually it will be able to do that well too. So Bixby is, is... a big part of Samsung's future, and Daniel hit it right on the head, it's because they don't just make phones. They make lots and lots of smart products. Um, so, you know, Bixby's coming, whether you want it or not. Uh, there are a lot of tie-ins with SmartThings, which is another brand that Samsung ac- acquired a few years ago and is now, you know, making it uh, a competitor to you know, made for Google assistant slash made for Lexa. Um, oh man, I was hoping it wouldn't, it wouldn't activate my, uh, and they've actually, they've been a really good, uh, steward of smart things. They have. Yes. Yeah. They've kind of left yes. it alone. They haven't, haven't plugged it up with a lot of crap. It just, it just works. Um, they've, they've actually made it better. And, and a lot of people who are into this kind of stuff were afraid that Samsung would try to, you know, take it over and change it. But they've made smart things a lot better. So, aside from Bixby, um, I think the the two big announcements at the developer conference were uh, this One UI, and of course the Infinity Flex foldable display slash phone. Let's start with One UI, Andrew. Um, This was Mm -hmm. couched sort of as a huge step for Samsung's software but what the company was really announcing was just the android 9 pie update for its existing phones um and they didn't say that a single time they did not so help us parse this announcement what is one ui why is it a big deal or not a big deal and and who should look forward to it it well everybody with a relatively modern uh samsung phone should look forward to it but the problem is that it's not, it, I don't know, it doesn't look that, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't look that different from the Samsung interface right now. Uh, they're saying all of the same things that every other smartphone maker is saying. Uh, they're they're separating out 
information that's important uh, in in far more easy to understand um, interfaces. They're moving things further down in the interface when they're actionable uh, because phone displays are getting bigger and taller. They're using lots of kind of material design style. I mean, for lack of a better term, uh, uh, design elements with kind of flat planes and big, bold uh, colors that contrast well with whites. And they're getting rid of all of the drop shadows and all that kind of stuff. But the problem is Samsung is already doing so much of this stuff. And I think that the biggest thing that One UI really introduces is trying to tell everybody that they're doing this. They've been doing these things for three generations or so now, uh, really since the uh, Nougat update. They've like the Nougat. And of course, they do this weird thing where they stagger it out between the Galaxy S and the Galaxy Note releases. But they've already cleaned up their interface a ton. This is really just saying this is a new step forward, like reminding everybody that they're actually thinking about these things because Samsung still has a really bad reputation for having confusing and bloated software. And I think that's what they're trying to fight in the, in the largest sense with one UI. What one thing it also does is in a perfect world, everybody that makes apps would want to update them and use Google's guidelines, how to, build apps using material design that look good. All those apps would now look great on a Samsung phone instead of having that huge disconnect between Samsung's native apps. That's the first thing I thought of when I saw the, I think when they showed the changes to the quick settings, that's when it hit me. It's like this moves just close enough to Google's design philosophy that all the apps are going to look good. Yeah, if, I mean, if developers would actually use those guidelines, but. it does. It does just strike me that they're rebadging or repurposing everything that Google announced with Material Theme, including you know ubiquitous night modes and everything else, and calling it you know with 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 unique glyphs and calling it something special. Um, I have no doubt that this will be a nice upgrade, but all of Google's apps are also moving the tabs to the bottom to make them easy for your thumb to reach. Um, not yeah. only that, but Google Material Theme, which is the sequel to Material Design, or at least the evolution of Material Design, that is part of the philosophy is no more hamburger menus, or at least minimize the hamburger menus, put the important tabs at the bottom so your thumb can reach them, because we're acknowledging that every phone that you buy is bigger than your thumb can reach, and that the stuff at the top is meant for viewing. And that's I actually, that's one of the... Th the things that I really liked about the announcement was that Samsung articulated the distinction between uh, where your thumb and where your where, where most of the interaction goes on your phone today and what you use to view content better than anybody I've seen so far. Right with the lengthening of smartphones to eighteen by nine and beyond, we have this disconnect between if you're holding your phone in one hand, there's only so far north it can reach, right? It's about the middle of the screen. And that is the area that you could potentially touch with one hand without activating some sort of mini mode. And everything else, if you're holding your phone in horizontal or you know, if you're just watching a YouTube video, 
uh, when your phone's in portrait mode, the video itself is going to be at the top, right? Um, and I, I think that is pretty much the way that we all use our phones these days. Yeah, and that's the thing. Samsung is Samsung's just announcing that they're doing the same things that the entire industry is realizing that it needs to do, which is fine. Like, this is good. I, I want Samsung to change it, but it, I don't think that it's as massive. It's not as revolutionary of a change as maybe it was it was initially sold as when you look at just the overall market moving toward understanding that these phones are massive and we need to change the way the software works and as we learned from the update from to from nougat to oreo there were a lot of problems that you know people had with just very minor changes that samsung made to the way that various apps work yeah, so this is the bigger problem. For all of us that complain about not having the latest thing, uh, most people are angry every single time that they get an update to their Samsung phone because it changes the way that something works. Uh, let us you know, not forget the individual text message tones uh, debacle. It, we eat, like They just make little changes and people lose their minds. And this is this is not a little change. This is a pretty big change to the way that things uh, work. I mean, outside of the iPhone, right? Every time a Samsung ecosystem or a bunch of Samsung devices get an update, it affects the most number of people at once. So it's not like you're everybody's getting their you know Oreo or Pi updates on the same day, but within a couple of months of Samsung rolling out an update you know, to its S7, S8, S9 line, that that's like nearly 100 million people or maybe more that are having to deal with an entirely new interface. Um, you know, we think about Google updating Android to a new version and it's like, oh, that's the, these are the changes that it made. But if Samsung doesn't implement, say, a gesture navigation scheme by default in its, in its uh, you know, one UI update, very few people are actually going to know that that's what Google intended for Android to do. Yeah. Look at the back button. The reason we're just now seeing, you know, Google getting rid of quote unquote, the back button is because of all those galaxy S fives S sixes and S sevens that still had a back button because the galaxy S two came with a physical back button that, you know, Samsung moves Android, period. Well, no, the Galaxy S6, 7 came with a physical back button. I mean, you, yeah. you remember, like, you recall, it was only two years ago when the S8 got rid of the right. capacitive keys below the screen. I was just saying that it started way back when Samsung included this back button. And, and it's on the wrong damn side. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, at, at yeah. Me. But <laughs> please. Of course, people that develop apps are going to know that 80% of the phones that can use this app have a back button. And it took this long to start to get rid of it. All right. So it's going to be better. It'll be, you know, nicer, flatter, whatever. Um, Hayato, are you looking forward to this? Are you going to sign up for the beta when it's available at the end of the month? I don't know. I mean... I, I always like a good UI change, but uh, I really don't want to go back to a Samsung phone anyway now that I'm uh, on the Pixel 3. So who knows? 
And I, I think that is a good point as well, that this does not, uh, this is new and shiny and cool. If you don't like the way that Samsung software works now, this isn't just going to dramatically change your opinion on a Samsung software. It is still very much Samsung software. It's the next evolution of it, and it looks like it has lots of usability improvements, but it still has, they didn't say anything about not having duplicate apps, not having you know, all these old settings and features, not having, um, you know, problems with (laughs) update cadence. None of that is changing based on what we heard about One UI. This is really just the next evolution of what Samsung thinks uh, it should, you know, its software should work like. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's totally fine. It's just don't expect it to not, you know, don't expect it to dramatically change. Like one UI doesn't all of a sudden make your Galaxy S9 Plus look like a Pixel 3 XL. And I don't think Samsung would ever, ever want that. Oh, definitely not, no. The number of times that they said the words Android 9 Pi during the keynote was zero. They did not even mention that this would be the Pi update. It's... It's like they're obfuscating it the way that Xiaomi obfuscates um, MIUI, right? They don't mention the next Android version at all. It's just MIUI 6 is going to MIUI 7. It's like Fire OS is some, you know, is is tangentially built on top of one version of Android, but ultimately it makes no difference. And this is kind of the same thing. To be fair, I don't think Google mentioned the word Android at all during the Pixel launch either. No, you're right. Absolutely. Cool. And the Android brand is is not nearly as important as it as it once was. Android um, was designed as just a commodity for people who develop their own operating system to plug in and be an application framework. We're finally seeing it come full circle, maybe. So, Jerry, um, other than this One UI announcement, obviously the big thing that we were looking forward to was uh, the flexible foldable phone that Samsung has been working on for years. You Mm -hmm. hearken all the way back to CES, what was it, 2012, 2011, 2010 even, uh, with Yum, this flexible, rollable foundation, you know, uh, substrate that that Samsung had been experimenting with. Uh, We'd seen foldable uh, displays by companies like Samsung, LG, and others for many years, but now it looks like we're finally reaching the point where we can build them at scale and they're good enough to be commercialized. Um, tell us about the Infinity Flex display and how it works and what it really means for the future of smartphones. Uh, well, it, the first thing you have to understand is the way Samsung took how AMOLED displays work and changed it with the Galaxy S6. Uh An AMOLED display is a composite of all these different layers. One of the layers used to be glass, hardened glass at the bottom. Well, to get the Galaxy S6 Edge, Samsung had to do away with that. And they used a proprietary material to replace the hard glass layer in the display itself. And it's uh, uh, it's plastic. Well, they they can use a fancy word, but it's a type of plastic. And it it bends, it flexes. Uh, They have now found a way to use that, a similar material as the top layer, 
which means you can have essentially two screens that's a, a device that two screens unfold to create one big screen without a bezel in the middle. And we have seen fo- foldable phones, quote unquote, from like ZTE and everything else. And what made them all horrible was the bezel in the middle that made them just unusable. Now you won't have that. It'll be one solid AMOLED display, which is great. That that increases the usability. I'm not even. I'm not going to say it increases it by you know X number of percentage. It actually makes it usable now, whereas before it was not usable. The trade-off is going to be that it's not glass anymore. Uh, nobody knows how great it's going to be to use a phone that the top layer is plastic. Oh, we know. I, Andrew I, and I know. Well, because we use the uh, Moto Z2 Force. It's not not great. It's not yeah, great. but it, it's going to be better than that. Uh, it, it so it has to be. There's a there's a reason why. So there is a differentiation between what Samsung's talking about with the displays and then this actual phone prototype device they showed off. But there's a reason why uh, Samsung's phone, which we're calling the Galaxy X right now, who who the heck knows? They might come up with some crazy mm. name for it. It folds inward. So it closes and the display is not uh, open to the elements when it's not in use. So it closes up like a book where the pages would be the screen on the inside. And then on the outside, they have what's called a cover display, which is a about four and a half inch display on the outside. So you can use it in one hand, Um, although that's kind of an awkwardly low resolution very tall display in this this particular example because there are you know there are issues with trying to do a flexible display on one side and a fixed display on the other and have it all work well yeah and but the biggest issue that i'm seeing people talk about is how thick is this going to be this is not that what samsung is doing isn't going to increase the thickness by any measurable amount by adding a display no. instead of a, a piece of plastic so don't what, don't automatically think it's going to be thick like a brick. Right. And the things the the what we saw, they very cleverly, you know, dropped all the lights on stage, you know, so they could yeah. open it up and focus on the display, but they also explicitly said this is this is not a like this is a hardware reference. This is not right. a design reference. Right. And so we're like don't look at all this other stuff because this is not what it looks like. I think they could have done themselves some favors by not showing it off like that, but you know, they wanted to show it working. The thing that adds the thickness here is having an extra display on the back because it needs to be able to work and you don't want to have to open it just to do things with it. And the hinge mechanism, the actual physical hinge part has to be solid because you don't want this thing kind of flopping about when you're holding it by one corner, you want it to, when it opens up, it needs to lock open and actually be solid and pull that screen taut because otherwise you, you have this kind of crease situation in the middle. Yes. And it's, it's AMOLED. It will have to be flat. There there can be no crease at all, or it will just provide, you know, this huge level of disconnect with, with a crease down the center. And so I, I have the, specs of the specific uh display that they're talking about as well so it's very funky uh funkily shaped so it's split down the middle vertically um but it's a 1536 by 2152 
7.3 inch display and it's got a really funky uh it's 4.2 by 3 aspect ratio and i so, that's not funky I, I mean that's ipad that's that's four by three that's that's no but it's but it, what i'm saying is it's 4.2 by three which is a little weird totally yeah but i'm just thinking like it, it's not it's not four by three and but yes it, it is old ipad or it is well i guess current ipad um ish layout and i i know uh andrew wrote something about i think it was andrew google supports this or, or they will support it when it's ready but that means very little because every single app will need to be updated. Uh, remember when Samsung first introduced multi-window, the only applications that worked were the applications Samsung wrote or the applications that companies sent to Samsung to be optimized. You're going to see that situation all over again. So I don't, basically I don't know what happens. That. I mean, Google well, even said in its during its keynote yesterday at the at the Android Developer Conference that um, you know flexible layouts have matured to a point where it will just resize, um, you know, accordingly. Um, most apps will have a tablet layout anyway, and it will just look is, fine. But, but that's they what don't. we have now, and look at it now. Right. I mean, it, like this is why Android tablets are dead. Because the the apps never worked. What we're looking at here is basically a seven inch tablet. Everybody remembers seven inch tablets. Really, they're really nice. Uh, the apps just don't make use of that extra screen. Right. Real estate. You, you look at the the Gmail app or something like, uh, you know, I can't even think off the top of my head of another app that was good. That that's how bad it, the the app situation was. But I'll use Gmail as an example on an old Nexus 7 uh, you, or the Galaxy Tab S4, the 8-inch version. It looks beautiful. It's a beautiful app. Portrait, landscape, both. But then you move on to another app, and it's a tiny little portion of content on a great big empty screen. And this is worse because these are not 16 by 9 like those tablets were, where it was narrow enough that the phone style kind of looked fine. Uh, because right now, Android apps are designed for, you know, any modern Android app is designed for an 18 by 9 phone, which yeah. is, you know, 2 by 1. This is beyond 4 by 3. But now, the, the apps will just work. beyond. The apps, all, all of your apps will work. They are just going to look ugly. Uh, where they probably won't work is split screen and that kind of stuff without Samsung's help or without the developer going back in and making some tiny adjustments. But that still takes time. And, you know, not every app developer is going to spend the time on all of their apps. I mean, in, in the absolute worst case scenario, every app is still going to look better than, say, Instagram on an iPad. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. And I mean, there's there are way like the the thing that I find really interesting here is, um, what is the desired outcome here for a company like Samsung? Because we have established uh, a, a a basis for understanding what a phone is, and I'm not talking about screen size. I'm saying that. Uh, I mean, One UI, like the, the entire One UI idea c contradicts the aspect ratio 
of this unreleased device. And I'm, and I'm not dismissing it, but what I'm saying is Samsung is introducing this, this idea of a multi-window view where you can resize up to three apps at a time and one can be vertical and then two can be, or you can do two vertical or one vertical and two square, but ultimately a single app open at once on this device is not going to look great. It's going to have a tablet layout and it won't look great. What Samsung's really pushing here is this notion of multitasking, of using it like a tablet or even a Chromebook. And that's interesting. But I do wonder, is this what we want from phones in the future? Maybe. When this mythical update sweeps through and Android and Chrome are no longer a thing and we have Andromeda or whatever it's going to be called this week and Flutter is the preferred development language, uh, I could totally see me with a, a phone that folds out to seven inches and any app that I'm looking at is just open in a small window that looks great and I have a desktop where I can move that window around or open another window. But the way Android works right now, I'm I'm right there with you, Daniel. This is kind of counterintuitive. And the other thing, Andrew, uh, as you were, I think, going to point out, was that the screen on the front, and while we can't assume that this layout, this exact reproduction will be in the final product, the Galaxy X that goes to, you know, that uh, comes to market next year, um, the company did say that the that the screen on the front is 4.58 inches and it's in a 21 by nine aspect ratio. And there's enormous bezels on the top and bottom of it, largely because I'm sure it just doesn't want to overdo it on the battery. Um, or, or maybe not, maybe it's about price, but either way, I think it needs more. I think it also just needs more room, but yeah, it could for all the internals. So here we're looking at a phone that when folded, maybe a bit thicker, but it'll still be in a form factor that's familiar to us with a screen size that's considerably smaller than what we're used to on our phones today, uh, opening up to a tablet that, as the Android ecosystem has shown again and again, is not something that people necessarily want. Um, Samsung will undoubtedly not be the only company to release a foldable phone next year. In fact, it'll be one of a dozen, I would say. Um, If this is among... You know, other things we have improved biometrics, as we spoke about earlier. We have 5G, which is going to be a big deal in 2019. Foldable phones, I think that's going to be the form factor change that will that will sort of stand for 2019. Um, I don't know. It just to me, it feels like it's it's maybe innovation uh, that doesn't have a use case yet. And I, yeah, I think that Samsung has a lot of, they're going to be learning along with everybody else. Uh, I made the comparison uh, on a much smaller scale to when they released the Galaxy Note Edge alongside the Galaxy Note 4, and it was just dumb. It had this curve on one side of the screen. Uh, They just said, holy crap, we have this curved display technology. Let's put it in a phone and it'll do some stuff maybe. And it, none of it 
made any sense, but that evolved into just being a feature of Samsung's infinity displays going forward where they had the curves on the side and they eventually used it as a design feature and in a way to have narrower phones and, and differentiate. This is like that on a larger scale because it requires a completely different form factor and they have some very serious usability concerns to to overcome here that are going to hinder people kind of figuring out what it should be used for because we're looking at a situation where that cover display the small display on the outside is very small and very narrow compared to even modern phones in terms of the aspect ratio it is going to be an extremely thick phone compared to modern phones we don't know whether it has a fingerprint sensor or is relying on face and iris recognition um we don't know what the keyboard and input experience is like with the display opened. Uh, you know, is it going to be too wide to use for that? We don't know how like phone calls are handled. I assume that phone calls are only going to work when the dis- the display is folded closed. Um, there's all these kinds of core questions that we just don't have answers for. We don't know how good or bad they are. But I, I agree with you, Daniel. There there are lots of hurdles to to get over just had this thing be really cool and we're expecting this to launch like as a product that you can buy Mm -hmm. in a, in a few months. And Daniel, I I want you to go over to your shelf of old phones. And I know you have one and find the original galaxy note and then get the galaxy note nine. And then you'll see why Samsung builds something that isn't necessarily great and picks the great ideas, and then a few generations later can have a product that incorporates those ideas that's absolutely amazing. That's what this is. Totally. No, look, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not like taking a dump on this idea of foldable phones in its first generation. I mean, every first-gen product is bad. It has to be because the company has to release it and learn from its mistakes. Andrew's point about the Galaxy Note Edge you know, six months later, that led to the Galaxy S6 Edge, which became the best-selling phone of, you know, the year for Samsung, outselling the Galaxy S6 by a lot. And it was an it was unexpected even for Samsung. I've spoken off the record to execs who were, who were around back then who said, we did not have a clue how many Galaxy S6 Edges would sell. We didn't think it would sell at all. We thought people would be interested in it from a curiosity perspective and then we couldn't we couldn't build enough of them they were selling so quickly um and that's why the galaxy s7 edge was the flagship a year later and that's exactly why the s8 didn't have an option for a not curved display i totally agree with you jerry by the second third generation we will understand exactly what samsung wants from foldable tech and i think it's time to try it out why not um my question though is more from a high-level perspective, a foldable phone is going to be, unless we go like the her route where the phone itself is tiny, 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 and we expand it to be a phone that's the like a regular-sized device like we have in our pockets today, my guess is that the future of foldable phones is going to be a phone in your pocket that expands to a laptop replacement. And then I want to know how the heck they're going to do that as Andrew said, while offering a decent typing experience and 
everything else that comes with that. Oh, uh, we we had that back in uh, 2012. That was the Motorola Atrix. Oh, right. The Lapdoc. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. That success just, you know, it stayed with me so much. Android held that back. Don't don't dismiss that idea. It is. a. It's Well, look, that's exactly that's the Surface Pro. I mean, like, that's right. what it evolved into. What I'm saying is that um, my guess is ultimately we don't want peripherals, right? We don't want to rely on third party. The iPad Pro is the its biggest liability as a computer is the fact that it is still first a tablet. It's a tablet that on its own is great that you need to buy a keyboard yeah. and a and a, essentially a mouse to use it properly in the way that Apple wants. My guess here is and I've used some I've used like the Galaxy Tab S4, which is Samsung's latest and greatest tablet. It's optimized, it has Samsung DeX, right? You can assume that DeX will be optimized for Android Q or whatever iteration that that Samsung's developing with Google, um, but I don't know. I mean, it, it's it, it just feels like this is uncharted territory for the first time in a very long time, and and I'm excited about it. Yeah, this is Samsung releasing, or you know, not yet releasing, but they will be releasing a product that they know they could get the technology to a point where it's not. Uh, it's not too big as in the, you know, the area around the screen is not too big. It's not too thick. It's not too heavy. And at the same time, it's not too small. You know, you could do some of this. uh, They're already doing flexible OLED, you know, in every single phone they sell, Um, you know, but they can only do that little part and it's not easily flexible, all that kind of stuff. So they finally got it within the realm of possibility where this thing could be, a type of device that you carry around, it's not going to be perfect because all the other stuff that goes around it, it is just going to be, you know, it's just going to be kind of a, a, a bad word. This but. is the Samsung <laughs> I love. If it were not for Samsung, every Android phone you'd buy would still be angular and metal and have apps like Kill Droid and all this crazy nonsense. Samsung introduced ergonomics to android they they brought us away from this manly robotic nonsense we see they they taught us that maybe we really do want gigantic phones and even i am now comfortable using a phone bigger than five inches this is what samsung does best is think of ideas make them work then look at what was successful refine it and give us a product we didn't even know we wanted that's uh that is that is one way to re uh repurpose history for sure look i'm i'm look i i i see it from your perspective but i also see that back in 2013 the galaxy s4 was uh was was um still taking a lot of uh, inspiration from from apple uh, it had a UI that was that was cartoony and colorful, and that every time you press the the screen, you would hear a uh, like a, a drop of water. And every time somebody, every time I hear a whistle, I I, I get triggered because it it like scarred me for life. Uh, and that was the same time that Google owned Motorola and released the Moto X, which I think has had just as profound an influence over smartphone design 
as as anything Samsung has built over the last few years. But if you go back two generations, the Motorola Andrew had to chuckle when I said Droid Kill because there was some sort <laughs> of application that you know just Droid. I think it was called Zap or some crazy. Everything was just crazy over the edge sci-fi and then here comes the galaxy s that had none of that and we loved it yeah i don't know i mean i i guess that's fair in retrospect samsung we in buying in buying millions and millions of galaxy phones we inevitably influenced other companies to do the same um you can you know you just take a look at lg right lg right failed so hard with the g5 that it made the G6 and G7 look basically like Galaxy phones. Um, but I think there has been, I think Samsung's legacy here is going to be more about how, how it marketed this innovative hardware to the mainstream at a carrier level and made it normal, right? It, it did the same thing that Apple did, except Samsung used instead of this like marriage of hardware and software and all that stuff, it basically used the fact that it completely owns display manufacturing. It completely owns the abil- its ability to produce beautiful hardware to, um, you know, to, to, to show its superiority at, at the carrier level. Um, and, and I think both of the, both of those arguments apply, but, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see how the company does the same thing next year with this phone. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's going to be cool. <laughs> I mean, you guys have you guys have gone way off the rails here. No, <laughs> Just, it's, I, I don't think we've gone off the rails. I, I I really don't think Samsung is actually believing that this is the best product of 2019 and beyond. No, that's that is an important point. This is not replacing the Galaxy S10 or the Galaxy Note 10 or anything like that. This is another like kind of side thing that they they think is going to be the milepost where they say okay, this isn't some random company releasing a foldable phone. This is going to be Samsung releasing it. And you know, Andrew, you wrote something today about how the Galaxy S10 may have a notch, right? This is, you know, in addition to its Infinity Flex, Samsung announced four new uh, notched styles in the Infinity O, the Infinity U, the Infinity V, and just the Infinity Free, which basically looks like it has no notch. Yeah, which is no no notch. Um, and we don't know what you know the company is going to use for its next flagships, but suffice it to say, um, you know, there it's a it's possible that the company is accepting the fact that in order to maximize screen real estate, it needs a notch of some sort or at least needs to figure out a way to figure out somewhere to put the cameras and the sensors um, at the top so that it doesn't have a notch. Yeah. We're still so far away from one, you know, one phone being able to have, especially at the scale that Samsung operates, have all of its sensors and cameras and things behind the display or hidden or something like that. It's easy for a company that's not selling at the scale of Samsung to do some of these things and they still introduce lots of compromises. Uh, Samsung understands that, that 
the market is going, I mean, is going the way of notches. That's just how it is. It's going to be like that for a little while until the sensors and all the supporting parts get to the level where you can have a, you know, all screen, you know, phone, even though it'll never be all screen. I I know two other companies that are working on putting the sensors in the display and some of the unique problems of making a display that still looks good yet has a two millimeter hole that a camera sits in and it's, it's weird. They've got to angle pixels and all this crazy, crazy stuff. So it's not a given that that's what Samsung's going to do. It may not even be possible. Yeah. I don't doubt at all that Samsung is going to be one of the ones to continue to push the display technology because that's just what they do uh, for their own devices and for other devices. But that you have to get to a really mature place of technology for Samsung to be able to put something in uh, Galaxy S10 or whatever you know mainstream flagship that they need to sell tens of millions of every single quarter. You just can't do something uh, kind of outlandish right off the start. Whether it's a notch or a, a slightly bigger bezel, whatever, it's going to be what Samsung has tested and tested and tested and thinks is the best they can do at the time. That much I'm confident in. Yeah, so it, will the S10 have a notch in it? Uh, I I think it's it's still kind of a toss-up. I would not be surprised if they put notches on other phones uh, lower down in the line, like the Galaxy A range or something like that. Oh, yeah, I think that's um, Yeah, that just seems like a really easy way for them to, you know, they can blend in with the market. They don't care so much, but Samsung has mercilessly mocked apple for the notch and this would be pretty a pretty bad backstep to, to go to a notch on their on their flagship phone i mean to be fair oneplus did mercilessly mock apple for its oh, headphone jack and then did the same well, thing so. so did google and look, the, never look know. what happened it's yeah, exactly yeah, the, the the problem is the problem is that uh, your average person doesn't know that oneplus exists as a company let alone that they make phones hey it's sold uh, at t-mobile co- now the question is, does does Samsung put enough pride in, in that dis- distinguishing factor like they have in the past with their Infinity display as a, a really big differentiator? Or do they realize that, you know, some people are going to complain, most people won't care, they're just going to buy the phone anyway? You know what I think about it all? I, I, I'm one of those people, I, I hate a notch. I won't buy a phone with one. Maybe Samsung can do a notch that I don't hate. If any company can do it, it would be Samsung. Jerry, I don't think you're. I don't think you would hate the OnePlus 6T notch, honestly. I, I, you know what? That's the first phone I looked at that I, I think I could probably deal with it because it's it's, it's there, but there. it's not unnecessarily big. Yeah, I think it's doable. I think it blends into the screen. It's not distracting. It's it's pretty well done. Um, and you know we're we're talking about the Galaxy S10. It's not even that far away. It's four or five no. months from now. Um, before that though, Andrew, we have to get through CES, which is of course going to bring a, another whole host of mobile announcements, screen, probably more foldable phones, screen enhancements. <laughs> yeah. We're probably going to see an LG foldable phone, um, at demoed well, and, at, at CES. And, and the, the day before LG or Sony or some other manufacturer has their keynote, we'll see the first leaks of the galaxy S10. That's just the way that always works. 
So uh, we're we're gonna put a cork in it for today and uh, and and come back uh, next week with with more hot takes. But um, yeah, I, I I think there's a lot to look forward to and a lot to be excited about uh, for for the next few months. Indeed, uh, Andrew, Jerry, Hayato, thank you so much. Um, thank you. It's been thank uh, you for having me, Daniel. Pleasure as always. Um, it's 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 been it's been fun. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Hit us up at podcast at androidcentral.com for any comments or feedback. Hit us up at Android Central on Twitter. Hit us all up on Twitter if you have any questions. We will see you next week. Have a great day. Bye. Bye-bye. See ya.